I have a title. I don't usually do titles, but I thought I'd do a title on this one. Here's the title. Remember who you are and then act like it. Even in the tough times. Remember who you are and then act like it. Even in the tough times. Remembering who you are speaks to the centrality of Christ um, in our lives and who we are in Him. And that's where I'm going to center this morning. I'm not going to execute the other two themes. Uh, but the next theme would be holiness, which is acting in love. Love and holiness are inseparable. Uh, holiness means set apart. Set apart simply uh, for one thing, and that's God's glory. So remember who you are. We'll talk about that more today. Out of that, you can act like you should. Set apart simply to who you are rather than who the world would like to, to make you. Um, and then finally, um, even in tough times. Even in tough times. So the context here, Peter... Cephas, Shimon, or Simon, whatever you call him, we first know him as pretty impetuous. He, 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 he jumps out and sinks in the water. He cuts the ear off of the uh, priest. Jesus has to put that back on. Uh, he says, I'll never forsake you. Was it, was, it, was it Peter who jumped in the water and swam? Shoo! Yeah, <laughs> Peter. Then after the day of Pentecost, or on the day of Pentecost, he preaches a sermon. 3,000 people get saved. He's the vessel through which God initiates the gospel to the Gentiles. Pretty awesome guy. Here we are in the year 60, 65 A.D. He's 50 to 60 years old. And in his next letter he says, Guys, it's about over. <laughs> it's about over. So he is under persecution when he writes this letter, but he's writing it to, you read all of those names, he's writing it to a place. Does everybody know where Turkey is today? All of these areas that he speaks to are in what is now geographically Turkey. And if you know anything about Turkey, they're still under persecution. Uh, but they were under persecution. We know this because we have letters between various leaders asking what do we do with these, uh, you know, with these Christians. And so you've got a guy who's probably close to being in prison, if he's not in prison, in Rome, which is the fountainhead of all political control, in Roman, speaking to people who have, have been spread through Turkey. Now, if, if you know the map, I'm going to do this backwards so you can see it. So if this is Israel, Turkey is all of this area up here. And so more than likely, some of these people were at, remember on the day of Pentecost, they'd come from all over the world, and then they probably, some of them went back. So some of these are probably people who came to Christ on that day that, that Peter preached. And they are going through persecution as well. So we have someone who has been in jail and been prayed out of jail, we know that uh, from the book of Acts, uh, who knows what persecution is, 
speaking to some people in persecution. And this is basically what he says to them. Listen, you need to know who you are. And then you need to act like the person you truly are. Even if you're being persecuted, you got to continue to live in that way. So that's sort of my over flyover of the book and what's going on here. And what I want to do is I want to I want to go through and I want to pull out I think six, um, yeah, six different explanations of who you are, six different aspects of who you are. Um, I could have tried to do all three of those themes. But if you know who you are, it'll take care of the rest. It really will. Uh, if, if you walk in who you are, then it'll take care of, of everything else, rain or shine. And the thing about the suffering, I've I got to say this before I get started. The thing about the suffering, there's a lot of ways to, to, to approach that topic with Americans. But for me... Calling people to walk in holiness or calling people to walk like Christians in the midst of deep tribulation is not really a message that I'm familiar with because I don't really live with people that are in deep tribulation. You know, he's not talking about your trailer breaking down in the parking lot. He's talking about people that are going to face torture and death probably humiliating death, sometimes in the arena. I, I can't really relate to, guys, listen, in this deep struggle that you're going through, I relate more to 1 Corinthians, which it's the same call. you got to walk holy. you got to walk like God called you to walk. The problem in Corinth, when that letter was written, was not persecution. The problem in Corinth was there was such... There was such wealth and such prosperity and such opportunity that people were falling into sin, lust, uh, uh, drunkenness, uh, debauchery. And so for me, uh, throughout my ministry, uh, throughout the years that I've ministered, I've ministered more to people that we have to be very careful to live like we're supposed to live because of the temptations of sin. We have so many. But this book is written to people who have, a, who have this, this temptation to withdraw, to, to hide who they are, uh, to, to fall back in because of persecution. And so I just left the suffering part out. We'll, we can talk about that some other time. It'll come back up again. Uh, but today I'm just going to talk about us understanding who we are, you understanding who you are. Um, let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, I want to ask that you would help us see who we are and then, Lord, strengthen us to live uh, that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about um, number one, we're strangers and pilgrims. Number two, we are elect. Number three, we are born again. Number four, we are people of an inheritance. Number five, we are saved. And 
Number six, we are the house, the priesthood, and the sacrifice. So we're going to go through those. And one of the things I want you to pay attention to today that, that I, I don't always draw our attention to is, does, does everybody here know what an illusion is? Not an illusion, illusion, but an illusion, illusion. I, I love illusion. It's almost like sarcasm. You, you can say one word, and that one word is supposed to bring a whole story. So, so it, let's say I give this, this explanation of the team. So, <clears throat> Carl, so we're the team. So, Carl is, um, I always forget to take this thing off because your Bible slides right off of it. Um, so Carl here, he is our Solomon. Bob here, he's our Jonah. Kevin here, he's our David. And Larry, or um, I got to get names that aren't in the church. Um, uh, uh, Sterl, <laughs> um, he was our Judas. Boy, I've said a lot. I've explained those four guys to you pretty thoroughly because of the allusion. The allusion to Solomon, he's our Solomon. Oh, he must be the guy who's really wise. He's our David. Oh, he's the one we send up against giants. Uh, oh, he's our Jonah. Everything always goes wrong when he's around. That guy's our Judas. He betrayed us. He left us. Illusion. It's a word that when you use that word, it alludes to a lot of other stuff. In the book of First Peter, there are six quotes from the Old Testament. I'll send those to you if I haven't already. Um, actual quotes. Um, and Peter, Peter is pretty, he's pretty noted for quotes. Uh, you remember that. If you remember, if you look back over to when you go home and look at that sermon he preached on the day of Pentecost, you remember how it begins? Everybody gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then what does the crowd say? These guys are drunk. And what does Peter say? These are not drunk as you suppose. And then he quotes about five or six verses from the prophet Joel. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And so he preaches out of the Old Testament about speaking in tongues, about prophesying. And so his, his text for his sermon that day was Joel. And then he gets finished, and then he goes to a, a, a psalm that talks about Christ. And he quotes the psalm, and then he preaches Christ. And then he has another point that he pulls out of a different psalm. He quotes the psalm and he preaches. His sermon is made up of three different verses from the Old Testament, preaching the Holy Spirit, preaching Christ, and preaching salvation from the Old Testament. This book is just the same. He quotes the Old Testament six different times. But, so listen to this, there are 47 times that he is probably using illusion. 
So you've got to understand that his mind is full of the Old Testament. And when he says something, you've got to define what he's saying from the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So it's a subtext. It's like he says one word, but it says, think God choosing Abraham here. Remember that story of God choosing Abraham. So let's start, and, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll explain each point less and less because you'll catch on. And by the end, I can just say the word, and you'll say, oh, yeah, that means this, 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 and this. Okay? You ready? So let's start. And um, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia. Now, this is Peter. He knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. This is why we study the whole Bible. Because you have to learn the whole Bible to understand one chapter of the Bible. You'll see in this chapter why you need to know the rest of the Bible to define the words. So we start off, he's writing to the strangers throughout Turkey. And, and you know, if you just stay in a modern mind... You don't really get it. He's writing to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, to the strangers scattered, scattered, scattered. How do you scatter people? It's like you someone bring them back in, I guess. The once scattered people are now gathered. I don't know. Anyway, what do you think of? Strangers scattered. Think in terms of the Old Testament. Yeah. You can go to a lot of places. You can go to, we can start off. Well, you can get to Abraham, but you can start somewhere else. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start with Adam and Eve. That's the first scattering. And here's what we know about the scattering. It's always to prepare people to gather them back. God has always been gathering us back to Eden, back to heaven. But the next place somebody mentioned it, Abraham. Abraham and Isaac, they left Ur of the Chaldees and they became strangers in a foreign land. Promised what? Another land. They never see it. And then they become wanderers. As a matter of fact, on down in uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it's the same thing. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Strangers and pilgrims, the same thing. They were sojourners. I think they use the word sojourn in the, uh, in the ESV. Sojourners. Where do we think about sojourners? In the wilderness. And so, so Peter says, he says, hey, you people. Hey, you people who've identified as the people of God, who are a people on a journey, a people who are scattered, a people who are not home yet, a people who live somewhere else, who, are, who, who have your residency somewhere else, but you're living in a strange land. Let me talk to you how you navigate this strange land in which you live. You see that? 
You see, when he says strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, he's saying, think. Think in terms of what happened to Adam and Eve. Think about Abraham. Think about how God was dealing with the children of Israel when they went down in Babylon. What were they always doing? They were always wanting to get back home. Guys, we want to get back home. We want to get back home. But in the meantime, we are pilgrims and we are sojourners. And so God, God is working in your life. Let's keep going. All right. Acts 7, verse 6 says, And God spake on this wise, this is Peter preaching, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil for 400 years. So Peter, in preaching Christ, goes back to that story over in the book of Acts, and he's taking us back to it. Sojourning. There was a purpose in Egypt. There was a purpose in the wilderness. There was a purpose in Babylon. There's a purpose for that angel that sat at the east gate of Eden until Christ returns. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith. Now, Hebrews 11 is what we call the, the chapter of faith or the faith chapter. Uh, somebody calls it, oh, the hall of faith, I think is what one of my pastors used to call it, Bob Rogers. He always loved, let's turn to the hall of faith. And he always said, God is a good God and the devil is a bad devil. Everything good comes down from God and everything bad comes from the devil. Now let's turn to the hall of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. He goes through the Old Testament and he says, all of these people died. Even the ones who got to Israel, even the ones who got to Jerusalem, the whole thing, they all died in faith because they never really saw the city that they were looking for. They never really found their final home. But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Hey, if you're going through challenging times, or even if you're going through times of plenty, this is not your home. We are strangers scattered abroad. We are pilgrims. We are sojourning. And we declare that we see a city whose builder and maker is God. And the final peace that we seek is there, not here. We will never have it apart from that eternal city. Hello. I think you mentioned most of them. But remember, in this journey, in this sojourning, there's always purpose. There's always reason. God is doing something. Okay? You didn't realize that the first sentence said all this, did you? But it does. It does with the word stranger. Stranger. That word comes back up. And, and there's a whole teaching of stranger that every time you hear that stranger or pilgrim or sojourner, you need to have that all inside of you so you can, so you can understand what, what Peter's trying to do. He's writing these people and he's saying, get your mind in the Old Testament. Get your mind in, in, in the stories, all of which spoke of Christ and what he was doing in your life. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. <coughs> 
is really funny. You know, this microphone is here. But on Saturday night, the microphone's here. So last night I had to cough. I did this. <coughs> I wrapped my hand around the microphone and coughed right into it. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. All right. You're in this world. You're traveling. Ultimately, Christ is going to return. And heaven and earth are going to meet. The old earth will pass away. And the heavenly Jerusalem will come down. It will be over. But remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your father know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every turn of your life, God is there. Whether it's a blessing or whether it's a challenge, he is leading you and he wants you to know something. Whatever you're going through, I passed a pretty significant wreck on my way uh, to church this morning. Got here and somebody's trailer's broken down in the parking lot. Somebody was telling me about a great breakfast that they had. Thomas got up early and tried to shoot a deer. All he saw was a little doe. And we know Thomas likes lots of dough. Every single thing that I saw today, God's hand is in it. He didn't break the wheel. He didn't crash the car. But he's there. And he is going to use that to perfect that person, move that person closer. Every single thing that goes on in your life, you're on a journey. You are a stranger. And what you run into is to conform you more to the image of Christ, for you to live more fully by the word of God. Kurt, Kurt said it during communion. We eat Christ. We grow as we allow the word of God to change us. Illusion. Illusion. At the end of the book, here's what he's going to say. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Hallelujah. You're strangers, you're pilgrims. This pilgrimage, though, is to prepare us for that place. And all along the way, whatever we run into. So Peter's writing to these guys who are going through some pretty significant things. And he says, look, you got to see it for what it is. When they went through the wilderness, when they got kicked out of the garden, when they got sent down in Babylon, Babylonia, Babylon. What was the reason? What was the purpose? It was to perfect you into the image of Christ. To cause you to, to get to the place that you learn that you live by bread alone.
Now see, he's going to, at the end, he's going to center on, so now you need to love your wife, you need to, you know, uh, obey Caesar, you need, you know, he's going to go through all this stuff that you need to do. But first, he wants you to understand why. He wants to understand who you are. He wants to understand the foundation from which you do that. If you're not all of these things, you can't do what he's going to call you to, but he wants to remind you of who you are. So number one, you're a stranger, you're a pilgrim. Number two, verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Elect. Now there is a pregnant word. If elect was a person, elect would have enough babies that they would get on the front page of the Cincinnati Enquirer. There is so much in that word. Elect. You are the elect of God. Let me share this with you about election. And I think it's... it's, probably the most important thing you will ever hear about election. Elect, to be elected just means to be chosen. It's that simple. Chosen. God chose you. You are chosen. God looks at Michael and says, you, I choose you. Now, we looked at it in Ephesians God chooses out of his own will. It's, his, it's, it's what he desires and he chooses. But there's a sneaky thing about election. And this is it. Election is in Christ. Election is in Christ. Read it. Go back. We've studied this many times. But there's something about that, that reformed Calvinistic a heresy that floats around that makes us forget what election really is. God really, honestly, has only elected one, and that was Jesus. The Bible says that he was chosen before the foundation of the world. That there's this eternal choosing of God, his perfect son, he chose him. But he didn't choose him in time. He didn't choose him at some point. They have always existed, and this choice has always been made. That's kind of hard to understand. But Jesus is the elect. He's the one God chose. But now we're called the elect. Here's why we are the elect. If you read in Ephesians chapter 1, you'll figure this out. We are elect... Because we are the bride of Christ. We are in Christ. We are one with Christ. And as soon, as soon as we find ourselves in Christ, we then become the elect of God. Everything that Christ has, we have. We are elected in Him. The day you were baptized, the day you came to faith, the day that you became the bride of Christ. He chose you. You are now in the choosing of Christ. 
Brenda and I prayed for years for Andrea Tucker. We weren't praying for Andrea. We were praying for whoever married Matthew. For years we prayed for Kenton Senna. But we weren't praying for Kenton. We were praying for whoever they married. And the day they got married, guess what? They were my family. They were my family and they will be my family from here on out. They are just as much chosen as my kids are chosen now. Hallelujah. The day that you made Jesus Lord of your life, you entered into this thing that God says, oh yeah, this is what I chose. Those people who want to marry my son, that's my choice. I don't want to choose people that don't love him because he would bring them into the house. He's preparing rooms for everybody. But he's only preparing him for those who love him. Why? I don't want somebody to come into my house that hates the way I do things. I don't want somebody to come into my house that's going to change everything. Ah, but those who have seen my son and they've seen his ways and they know him. Ah, yes, that's my choice. So you are the elect of God. And it's interesting. God, God prophesies and he reminds people of this. In uh, Isaiah 41, all right, when I say Isaiah 41, that should tell you something real quick. What should that tell you? Isaiah 41. I didn't say Isaiah 39. I said Isaiah 41. Why is that significant? I'm going to find out. I'm going to start finding out what kind of Bible students we are because I know I've, I've said this several times. Why would 41 have a significance that 39 doesn't? Because Isaiah, in chapter 40, there's a switch. Before that, it's talking about judgment of of nations. But it becomes messianic in chapter 40. And it's hope. And it's the future. And it's a coming Christ. And so in that hope for the coming of Christ, look at what God reminds them of. Isaiah 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant... Jacob, who I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Abraham was called the friend of God. Why? Because he trusted God. Abraham put his faith in God, and because of that, he became the elect of God. God chose him. He responded in faith. And now, Abraham's son, Jacob, grandson, great-grandson. He says, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. And so he's, they're in, they're in straits. They're being judged. It changes. And he says, but now don't forget, I've chosen you. You're my elect. So one of the things that God wants to do whenever you're in challenging times is to say, yeah, you're in challenging times because you need to be pruned, but don't you forget, I've chosen you. Don't you forget, I've chosen you. Now, if you're a good student, if you're a good student, you'll do what Nehemiah did. And we know Nehemiah was a good student. 
He knew the Bible. And so what does he do? Well, Bill taught us about prayer. And look what he does in his prayer. Back over in Nehemiah 9, 7. You are the Lord. The God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. See, he's going to go back and he's going to build the temple or restore the walls and to restore the word. And in his prayer, he says, God, you chose Abraham. And you said that you would use his people to establish a place and glorify you. See how that works? Oh, you know, I don't know what's going on here. Just remember that I have chosen you. God, I see the purposes that need to happen, and you chose us. So, Father, please, in all humility, let us live up and let us become that temple that you've called us to be because you've chosen us. Not because we've done anything, but because you've chosen us. Elect of God. Okay, you're pilgrims and strangers. You're on a journey. But you're also the elect of God. God has chosen to work through the church. God has chosen to work through you. All right, so I'm not going to spend as much time as we keep going. But do you see how that word, if, if, if you follow it back into the rest of your teaching... That Peter, near the end of his life, an old guy, and I'm hoping that at some point we can get to the place where we can preach this way. You know, get up and say about six words and go home. <clears throat> and it just all, it all happens for you. Let's stop and pray and ask the Lord to send me a cup of water. Hey, there's bottles in my refrigerator, Mike. He's in there getting one already. Don't everybody get up. He's, he went to get me water. Because <clears throat> he's, he's that kind of guy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is number three. Which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have this lively hope. Death. We're not afraid of death. We have a lively hope. Why? Because we're begotten of God. We're begotten of God. You know the saying, if you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. Does that make sense? If you're born again, you're never going to die again. You'll only see one death. But if you're not born again, you'll die physically, but you'll also rest in eternal death. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten, thank you so much, hath begotten us again unto a life. It was probably hard to find anything to drink out of, wasn't it? If somebody had labeled those things properly, then, then we'd be able to find The joke is Roger went in, and man, it is immaculate in there. It is great. 
It's, it's so clean and nice. Thank you so much. Uh, it was great. We had the Thanksgiving dinner with Mars Hill, and it just went so smooth because nobody came and asked me for anything. <laughs> yeah, they could find it. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, he's begotten us again. Therefore, we're not afraid of death. We have a hope. We're no longer living like I have to protect myself because I'm going to live forever because I am begotten of God or born again. So number three, you are born again. You are seriously and really and actually born again. On down in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, as new, he, he continues this, this, this idea, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. That you may grow thereby. There's a new book out, and it's discussing resurrection in the Old Testament. And I can't wait to read it. A lot of times it's hard to see those things until somebody points it out. And I can't wait to read that book and see the places that, that they identify this resurrection. But, you know, there's always a remnant. There's the root of Jesse. Uh, there's, there's many places where things seem totally destroyed, but then they come back. You are born again. And most importantly, because you're born again, you will no longer taste death. This life will not touch Spiritual death again. And the Bible says we are held in bondage by what? The fear of death. But through Christ, we are delivered from that bondage. We are free to live recklessly. Hey, if you don't wear your, want to wear your seatbelt, don't worry about it. I'm just kidding. but it's, In a sense, you know what I'm saying? Hey, you want to persecute me? Hey, you want to threaten me with death? <laughs> That's kind of like saying... Hey, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to give you Christmas every day. I'm born again. Hallelujah. Shoot me. Oh, thank you. That's the nicest thing anybody said to me all day long. And we laugh, but we really should live that way. We should have no fear of death. Maybe we should have fear of pain and suffering, but, but not death. You know, it's a lively hope. Hey, one day I'm going to die, and I'm going to take off this, this old mantle of flesh, and I'm going to be raised up in immortality. Hallelujah. You are literally born again. So, as newborn babes desire the sincere, sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Verse 23 of chapter 1 says, Being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, I think that word born again has, has been ruined, and I would like for us to reclaim it. Uh, born again is kind of cheap, you know. Did you pray a prayer? Did you go down front and pray a prayer and get your ticket to heaven? You know. No, if you've been born again, the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new cre creation, a new species of being. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
It's not like you've got an old car and you've gone in and had a new engine put in it. No, you've got a brand new car that'll park itself, that'll drive itself, that'll play the song you tell it to play, and will make you handsome, <laughs> and everything else in those commercials. <laughs> You're a whole new species. You, you, you don't just have a new status. You are new. You are completely different. And I think, I think one of the things that Satan wants to do is, is to say, well, I, I think I'm going to heaven. I think I'm born again. That has nothing to do with it. When you're born again, you live in a realm that has no fear of death, and you live knowing that my home is somewhere else, and the life I live now in this flesh I live trusting God now. I, I don't trust this world. I trust God. My center of trust is in what he's done through Christ. Galatians 6.15 says, Neither circumcision, that's religion, or uncircumcision, that's a different kind of religion, counts for anything but a new creation. A new creation. It's not that we've taken on new rules to try to get to heaven. It's that we've been born again. We're a new creation. We are the sons and daughters of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Romans 8, 3 through 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but by what? The Spirit. We are born of the Spirit. And therefore, what we couldn't do before, we can do now because we're a new creation. Number four, in verse four, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Inheritance. <clears throat> I am a person with an inheritance. It's interesting as <clears throat> I'm watching some of our uh, folks get older, and uh, obviously their parents are getting older. It's really interesting. The ones that have money, I mean, big money. It's funny to see how their kids start living the older they get. They know that inheritance is coming, and they live a little more extravagantly. They get that new car that they had always wanted. Maybe they can't afford it, but dad's got one foot in the grave. And that money's coming. That's not a bad thing. That's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing evil or wicked about that. Inheritances are great. And to know that, that you're going to get it, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, God says, you need to live like you have an inheritance. You don't need to live like you're some poor kid who whose father's the devil, 
and all he does is take away from you. You need to realize, man, I'm pouring it all out on you right now. But when I, well, <laughs> I guess God's not going to say, I died. <laughs> he did. Uh, and you've got an inheritance. And it's funny. Every now and then you'll run across somebody that they get a real inheritance. And, and, and they get kind of nervous about it. It's like, oh, I, I, I found out that mom and dad have like almost $2 million and, and, and there's only three of us kids. And that means, and, uh, how do you tithe on that? It, it's just an interesting time to see them go from somebody who has nominal income, an okay house, to somebody who's going to get $750,000 in the next year. It's just, it does something to them. You ought to let that happen to you right now. You have an inheritance. It's not an inheritance from a rich father. It's an inheritance from a God who owns everything. Incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, fadeth not away. And on occasion, I've seen someone who's gotten an inheritance and been able to go through it pretty quick. (laughs) And they don't have no more daddy. But what God has given us, superabundance, it will never fade away. Reserved for you in heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Anything you get here will stay here. Only the glory to which we've given God will be to our account in heaven. You've never seen a hearse pulling a trailer. Unless somebody sent you that meme that's on Facebook and somebody got a hearse and put a trailer on it just just so you couldn't say that. Don't you wish you could have the exact house you wanted? The exact car you wanted? the exact servant, employee that you wanted so that you could do exactly what you wanted? Now, really, when the, when the refrigerator starts getting old and the ice maker or the water dispenser doesn't work or you get that one drawer that when you pull it, it goes sideways, we've all got stuff like that. We'd like to be able to just go out and buy a new one, wouldn't we? I used to try to fix it, you know, and it doesn't work. And Brenda has to deal with it for two years, taped up or whatever. But everybody inside, we want to live in a place where we can give ourselves to loving each other and spending time with the people we love and not have to, you know, always be going and getting that old car fixed. Or if, if just all of those cares would go away, Every culture knows that. Every culture. The the cultures that don't know Christ are human beings. They're created just like you are. And there's within their soul this sense of there's got to be a place. There's got to be a way for everything to be perfect. It's called utopia. In, in, in literature, you'll find Shangri-La. You'll find Camelot with King Arthur, the perfect kingdom. You find the Shire. 
If you're Peter Pan, you find Neverland. You never grow up. And if you're a hobo, what do you find? Huh? Yeah. You find the Big Rock Candy Mountain where all the boxcars are empty. I'm headed for a land that's far away besides the crystal fountains. So come with me. We'll go and see the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Did, did, did you know what that song? You finally got it, Thomas. Yeah, right. In the Big Rock Candy Mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. Where boxcars, Kathy, are all empty and the sun shines every day and the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees. <laughs> the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. All the cops have wooden legs and the bulldogs have rubber teeth and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. I guess that's utopia or heaven to a hobo. But everybody in their own mind, in their own soul and who they are, they just feel like there's some place where everything is right. There is a place. They are longing for a place that exists. And it is heaven. And because you are sons and daughters of God, he is preparing a place in the house of God for you, and you will inherit heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. Number five, who are kept by the power of God unto salva- by, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The word salvation, and you're going to have to do this one on your own because it's, 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 it's about time. Um, Salvation, if I use the word delivered, it might help you. It's the same word. It could be translated delivered. Now think about deliverance in the Old Testament. Peter, who is full of the Old Testament, says, you have been delivered through faith. Your deliverance, your final deliverance is coming through faith. If you've done your foundations... You know that you got saved, you're being saved, and there is a final salvation. Romans says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, final deliverance is coming. You have been saved. You are saved. You are delivered. You are delivered from the power of sin. Think Red Sea. Think comparing baptism to Moses in the Red Sea. That's what the New Testament compares it to. All of your enemies were swallowed up in an ocean. And they're at the bottom of the Red Sea. You are delivered, set free from the power of sin and eternity separated from God. Number six, verse four and five. To whom coming as unto a living stone. This is chapter two, verse four and five. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying here? He's saying, go back to the Old Testament. Read the story about the glory of Solomon's temple. When the queen of Sheba came and her breath was taken from her and she said, I've heard it said with words, but now I see it with my own eyes and the half was not told to me. How magnificent is this house of God? You are that house of God. You are that house of God. And that house of God had administration of sacrifice to God. where They would bring sacrifices and offer them up daily. You are now the priest who offers up that sacrifice. And what is that sacrifice? It's very interesting. If you'll read Romans 12, it tells you that sacrifice is your life lived in a certain way. And to boil it down, it's a life of love. Not only are you the house of God, not only is the world to look at you and magnify God because of the sacrifices, that is your choice to love, your choice to give, your choice to not render evil for evil, your choice to treat your employer like you're supposed to treat him, your choice, you're the house of God, and those are the sacrifices. That Those sacrifices have replaced the offerings of the Old Testament. Christ did it perfectly. He came. He was the temple. He was his own priest. And he sacrificed himself. Now the scripture says we do the same thing. It says you're the house of God. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. Read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Acceptable to God by Jesus. Did you may prove what is that good and what acceptable will of God. We are the direction. We are, we, we, are the, we are the declaration of God's will in the earth. And how do we declare it? By the way we live. And for these folks, it was for the way they lived under persecution. But for us, it's the way that we live day by day. So those six, let me just read them to, to you. You're strangers and pilgrims. Say, I'm a stranger. I'm a pilgrim. Howdy, pilgrims. <laughs> Number two, you're elect. Number three, I'm born again. Say, I'm born again. Number four, say, I have an inheritance. And that inheritance is heaven. Number five, I am delivered. I am set free. Sin has no power over me. And number six, say, we are the house of God. And my life is a spiritual sacrifice. In summation, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Come on up, Paul a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, 
but now had obtained mercy. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Know who you are and act like it, even in difficult times. All right. How many of you are glad you're saved? Amen. Hallelujah. If you're happy and know it, clap your hands. <laughs> All right. Isn't that nice? Peter was calling them to some heavy things, but interspersed all the way throughout, he says, because of what God has done. It's because of who you are in him. It's because he has set you free and he's empowered you. So let's, uh, let's just offer him thanks for that. Let's stand. And um, yeah, guys, can you turn our hearts toward heaven?